You're listening to The Razor's Edge. I'm Daniel Schwarzman, co-host of this show, along with Akram's Razor. On The Razor's Edge, we take investing ideas that Akram has been studying as part of his trading or his investing service, also called The Razor's Edge, which builds on his two decades plus as a prop trader and investment researcher. We break down the ideas, the research that goes into them, and what might go right or wrong in the future. We also speak with industry executives and other investors and experts to better understand the opportunities and trends in a given space. And I bring a generalist take based on a decade of investing and reviewing thousands of investing ideas and seeing how they played out during my time at Seeking Alpha. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can also check out Akram's work on The Razor's Edge on Seeking Alpha's Marketplace by searching for The Razor's Edge. If you have a chance to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or to share this with a friend, we really appreciate it. You can also reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Occam's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment or trading advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast, or during our introduction to a given episode. On today's episode of The Razor's Edge, Akram and I talk with Rahul Vora, the founder and CEO of Superhuman. Superhuman is a hot startup that promises the fastest email experience ever. It's had some big name investors into initial funding rounds and has turned a lot of people's heads. Akram specifically has been using the product this year and is a fan. It fits into our recent discussions about Slack, Zoom, and other collaboration tools. It gives us another take on whether Slack is really killing email, or whether rumors of email's death are greatly exaggerated. This episode goes into the product and development aspects of a tech company more than we usually get to, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. Of the stocks we mentioned on this podcast, I'm long Google, and Akram is long Twitter, Facebook, and Slack, and we recorded this episode on July 1st, 2020. Okay. You've got mail. So let's get started. All right. So Rahul, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's just start. We've been talking a lot about on the Razor's Edge about Slack, about collaboration tools. We were reviewing also as we got ready for this, the old Walt Mossberg post from a few years ago, that email is still, still around, still strong. How are you seeing email fitting into its role generally fitting into all these collaboration tools, all these chat tools and everything else? Like, where do you see, is email's role morphing? Is it declining? Or how do you, how do you see it from your vantage point? Well, I would start by saying that I absolutely agree with Mossberg's analysis. For anyone who hasn't read it, it's definitely still worth a read. Email is still one of the most powerful tools that we have. Because with this 50-year-old technology, we can share everything from quick one-liners to complex presentations. And that's why, to this day, we still spend 28% of our days in email, and we send nearly 300 billion emails every single day. And there are some structural reasons why that's the case. For example, email is the default unit of authentication. It's the first thing that you get when you join a new company. And that's for good reason. It's the thing that you use to log into everything else. And an email address is also the fastest way to identify somebody at a company. If you take my email address, rahul at superhuman.com, rahul is my name, superhuman is my company, 
and it's the fastest way to get a hold of me at my company. And it does so in a way that's owned by the company. It's very unlike, for example, my cell number. If I were to leave Superhuman, I'd take my cell phone with me and my cell number with me, of course, but I'd leave my email address behind. And that's what companies actually need. Well, what do you make of the, we'll get more into it, I guess, but what do you make the, the challenges, the co- critiques of email, obviously, as compared to, I, I can say, for example, with what I really like about using Slack is precisely that anybody outside of the company can't get a hold of me. And I, they, they may or may not be testing things around that, but email is such a grab of attention. It's such a different people trying to flag your, just get in there and get your time. So Akram has more experience directly with Superhuman. I know that Superhuman does a lot of stuff to filter, but what do you make about, there are negatives to email, right? That the Walt Mossberg piece was written as a contrast to the prevailing sentiment. So what do you, how do you think about that aspect of it? I think we need to be nuanced between email, the concept, email, the abstract idea, email, the protocol, and email as it's experienced by many people, depending on their email clients, for example. So I know that with Superhuman, it's a very different experience. Most of our users end up getting through their inbox twice as fast as compared to in Gmail. And many of them see Inbox Zero for the first time in years and are able to sustain that. So we dramatically transform their relationship with email whilst retaining the parts that make it magical and special. For example, the ability to very easily communicate with anybody in the world, the ability to slice and dice and triage, label and star, archive, mark and read. It's an extremely powerful platform. So I think this idea that Slack would kill email was very smart marketing. But it was mostly because people really dislike the status quo of email and not because Slack is a good replacement for it. Many executives I've spoken with have secretly shared their Slack anxiety. I don't know if you feel this, but that feeling when you go back to Slack and it's filled with big, bold text, 10, 20, 30 unread channels. And in each of these channels, hundreds of messages spanning dozens of conversations, conversations that aren't structured in any real fashion, no real beginning, no real end, no actions, no takeaways, and worst, they all massively interleave with one another, creating this huge cognitive overload. And then on top of that, there are no triage tools. You can't label certain messages whilst archiving others. You can't organize the communication. Now, by comparison, email is significantly better structured because it is structured around conversations, not people. And so it gives you tool for handling multiple conversations with the same people, which guess what is the reality of our work. So for example, if you and I work together, we might exchange a dozen emails in a day and I can snooze some, I can label others and I can archive the rest. I can treat each conversation as a separate work item. So in summary, I would say Slack requires you to constantly check it, even though that's your starting point with email. Email doesn't have to be that way, but Slack is that way. Slack is synchronous, it's reactive, and for many, it's anxiety-inducing. But by comparison with the right tools, email does not require you to constantly check it. It is inherently asynchronous. It's thoughtful, it's calm, and it can be very fast, especially when you use something like Superhuman. So that that also gets into... Synchronous, asynchronous, that's obviously a big touch point right now as everybody's working from home. And I, you know, whether or not people are starting to go back into the office now, obviously lots, lots of different effects and sort of 
influences there. But what are you seeing as far as I should say also that Stuart Butterfield has talked about how you, Slack can be used asynchronously and how it should be. And so I think they're, they may be reacting to that anxiety that you talk about. But what are you seeing in terms of usage? We're recording this July 1st, four months into the sort of COVID situation. What are you seeing? Has that really changed email usage? Has it just increased the way that so many other digital tools have increased? Or what are you sort of seeing from this period? It has. I think we're going to see a renaissance in email, a a pre-Cambian explosion of email, if you will. As distributed teams become the norm, we will work increasingly remotely. And as remote becomes the norm, we will be increasingly in multiple time zones. And as you say, this will dramatically favor asynchronous communication. And so what will happen is teams will choose the best tools for the job And in many regards, it's really hard to beat email. And in fact, we've already seen since the start of COVID, the average number of emails sent per person rise by roughly 20%. Okay, that's an interesting data point. Just out of curiosity, with Superhuman, what what has changed about your internal day-to-day? What have you noticed or been surprised by since you've presumably had to change operations in this period? I think the main surprise was our working habits have shifted. We're seeing folks start their work days roughly one hour earlier, finish them roughly one hour later. In other words, we're working about two hours more per day than we used to. Now, in the absence of any other changes, that does not seem healthy at all. And I've experienced it myself. I was brushing up against burnout a month or so ago, and I had to disconnect to fully recharge. So I've spent a lot of time thinking, well, what can we do to solve this? And I've come to the conclusion that we as leaders really need to lead by example. We need to model that it is a great thing to practice self-care, to exercise, to meditate, to take our PTO, to use that vacation, because until we do these things, our teams won't feel comfortable doing them either. So quick question. Do you meditate, by the way? I do. I actually take it very seriously. I would have guessed so listening to you. Because you do definitely have a bit of a, a, a Zen element to this. So uh, actually to push, to, to push, not really to push back yet, but as far as my experience with Superhuman, obviously I'm very happy using it. And uh, Daniel bringing up COVID is, is very, obviously very interesting because the path that brought me to Superhuman was essentially a decluttering experience. Fast forward, let's say after the first month, month and a half, you know, I got past oh, everything that I can order online, making Instagram videos, playing around, whatever, dealing with with the markets obviously has kept anyone busy in in, in this business. But I got to a point where it was like, I I want to improve my efficiency on certain things. And I've typically been, you were talking about people seeing Inbox Zero for the first time in a while. I saw Inbox Zero for the first time since, since I opened my first email account. So, I mean, <laughs> it's right, which by the way, is a very soothing experience. But when I looked at it and I came to Superhuman, I started out essentially with when I consume content and I, I do create some content, I take screenshots of stuff. If I'm writing a, a report on a company or a thesis or I'm working on it and it's a process and there is like kind of this creative chaos. And I, I've always kind of prided myself on that. And because of that, I clearly never learned uh, organization has not been a strong suit. And I was really never forced to, to change that. And, and progressively, email has gotten messier and messier and messier for me. 
people were like, I mean, I generally would joke. I had like 30, 40,000 unread messages and you just look at it and it's daunting. And I'm like, how do I get rid of this number? But like, am I going to spend time on it and invest in it? When I came across Superhuman in that process, it was like I started, you know, I start, I, I got True Bill to basically figure out what I'm, you know, wasting on subscription, and then I like I was like researching, okay, how do I improve email? And literally, Google that, discover it, and read one article about it, and signed up and booked an appointment. And to me, the 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 initial. 30 minutes. And I don't remember her name. She was great. I think it was maybe Caitlin. I mean, it was like email therapy, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously a bit weird where like you're, you're, you're sitting, staring at a computer screen and, and you've got someone being like, don't touch that mouse. But <laughs> it's, it was by the time you were done and you, uh, within like, you know, two or three days, I'm like, what? why has not Google just adopted this across the board? So, that, but like, that is because like to me, it it brought me up to a level where it drastically improved time that was being wasted. And productivity wise, you do feel essentially, you know, aptly named superhuman. In fact, I mean, I, I, there is a counter in terms of of, of one element. I, I, I was actually pitching superhuman to a friend of mine who's the type of guy, like after he reads a book, he turns it into a case study just for his own personal notes. He is superhuman by himself as far as organization skills. And I mean, when he's like, oh, I already do this, I already do that, I already do that. And like, to me, what, what you've done with, with Superhuman has essentially given the average email user superpowers or the ability to see what, like how email needs to be used because we haven't learned how to use it. But to counter, at the same time, the trends in our daily lives are, like you were talking about anxiety. Like if I was to look at my screen time, it's like Twitter, WhatsApp, Slack, uh, TikTok making a, you know, a move lately too. <laughs> I think it's really fascinating. The, if I were to tie a bow around everything you've just said, I mean, this is really what we're trying to do. In a sense, it's to democratize productivity. There are people like your friends who are inherently organized, the inherently superhuman people. We may strive to be like them, I can share with you, I am not that kind of person. Those who know me, those who work with me will know I am chaotically disorganized. I can't put a plan together. I can't systematize well. I'm just really bad at, at that set of executive skills. There's a really interesting book, by the way, this was recommended to me. Uh, I'd highly recommend it to everyone listening right now. It's called Smart But Scattered, Guide to Success, How to Use Your Brain's Executive Skills to Keep Up, Stay Calm, and Get Organized at Work and at Home. And it's a really fascinating book because it describes the 13, 14 or so executive functions in our brain, and it gives you a very quick way to self-assess against them. And so I read this book. I did this self-assessment. And it turns out that I am a dysfunctional, sort of borderline childlike ability at almost all of them, with the exception of the two that you need to be a successful entrepreneur, thankfully, otherwise the company would be a complete failure. Those two uh, out of interest are flexibility and goal-directed persistence. I'm extremely flexible and I'm extremely persistent in the pursuit of goals. But for things like systematization and time management and prioritization and planning, I do really poorly. And so it's a very personally felt problem. And I wanted to bring myself 
and everyone who was interested in the journey to the ability that you described in your friends to being truly superhuman, to living up to our true potential. And so that's why we invented the onboarding program. I mean, you're right. It's extremely effective. We're now at the point where 36% of all customers hit inbox zero in the onboarding itself. And 50% of all customers hit inbox zero within four hours of starting to use the product. That's crazy. I mean, I, I don't know if you read the Verge article on on Hey last week, uh, or no, on Superhuman actually. Where I, I, I know, I, I think you commented, or I commented on Twitter, and they, they, I actually was a little, let's not say annoyed, but like to say disagree. I've been a Superhuman user for just over 30 days, but they viewed the onboarding process as almost a, in a way, a failure of the product, right? Like you can't, you can't learn it, and like I have tried to use Notion several times because of the things I do with content and to be able to share a workspace essentially. And I've started and stopped it because it's daunting. And at my age, maybe if, if I was 18 years old, I'd probably pick it up really quick. But like you've got these habits and you know at 42, it's like you start playing with something and you want someone to hold your hand those first couple steps. So I, I was actually kind of surprised by the article where it was like you have to do 30 minutes before you start. And like to me, from a tech product standpoint, I'm like, why doesn't every single SaaS or tech use this? Because your highest burden for me as a user of experimenting with anything is that first couple times when I get on your product and use it. And we'll get to Hey actually in, in a minute because I, I've been using it for the last week and there was no onboarding process and I, I've been figuring things out on my own. But I'm I'm surprised that someone would look at it as like oh you're you know when you when you talk about user experience and simplicity and usability there is this embedded assumption that like you're supposed to design products and technology that anyone can use immediately and it's funny i just got my father a brand new samsung phone and he's 72 years old and he's he was like on an s6 and i, I actually wanted to move him to an iphone because i personally thought it was easier but he's just you can't change things for him and he's a very technical type of guy, he's a surgeon. He'll take a direction book, go through it, but like they don't sell you phones anymore with the direction book. Like, it just doesn't happen. Like you can't sit there and be like, all right, I got the manual. I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna read through this, and I understand it. I mean, there's help, there's online stuff, but for him, part of like like from when I got him the phone for Father's Day, I don't think he still used it because he's <laughs> he's paranoid about it disrupting his daily life. So when you do think at for adopting a product, uh, I don't know whether you stumbled on this, you were thinking about it, but why do you think more people, more tech companies don't try to do this? Is it is there it, in the community, do you think when you talk to other CEOs, investors, et cetera, that there is this like negative connotation to it? Or is it something that, you know, people are starting to figure out, you know what, particularly in the in the era of video conferencing now and, and real time everything, it's like 30 minutes invested in a product that you're going to pay for at the start is going to be time you're going to waste anyway uh, over the next month and a half if you try at it. And if you're the vendor or the, the company creating the product, you may lose that customer anyway in that window. Absolutely. And for listeners who may not know, I'll just provide a little bit of background context here. For each new user, we do a live concierge onboarding. This is a 30-minute one-to-one video call with one of our wonderful onboarding specialists. And in these onboardings, like was just described, we teach you how to use the product. And not only that, we teach faster workflows to get to inbox zero. We teach powerful shortcuts so that you never have to touch the mouse. And if you're very far away from inbox zero, we actually wipe the slate clean 
so that you're within a stone's throw of it. Now, you asked, why are people, other companies, so negative on this idea? Well, to go back to that Verge article for a second, I think the author made one fatal flaw, which is conflating value and money. Superhuman may not be value for money for him, but he doesn't realize that there are people who live in their email and that there are people for whom email is work and work is email. And that's actually the set of people for whom superhuman is designed. And for them, $30 a month is actually, it doesn't even register compared to the amount of value that they create and how important and valuable their time is. Now, many people have told me that our approach to onboarding cannot possibly scale, that having people do manual white glove service for every single user isn't tenable. And those people simply don't understand our economics, so we can take a look together. Let's say that we want to reach $100 million of ARR, because of course, we're a venture-backed company. And let's say that ideally, we want to get there in two years. Now, that means in each year, we'd have to add roughly $50 million of annual recurring revenue. Now, each onboarding specialist can onboard 35 to 45 customers per week. Let's assume it's 40 customers, and let's also assume that there are 48 working weeks per year. If you do the math, so that's $50 million divided by 40 customers per week, divided by 48 working weeks per year, divided by $30 a month, divided by 12 months in a year, you get to 70, 71 onboarding specialists. A team of roughly 70 can add $50 million of ARR in one year. Now, you compare that to the size of sales teams at most companies, any other enterprise software as a service company. And it turns out that what we've stumbled upon is this incredibly efficient business. Now, how we got there was by thinking from first principles, by iterating a thing that seems to be working and doubling down on early success. And in doing so, we were able to overturn this belief, this unquestioned wisdom that the industry had, which was you cannot onboard people to a $30 per month product. You first just sort of implicit in that, I guess, and not to necessarily ask for big disclosure, but you're, you're implying that churn retention is really good. If you're the, the bet here is that the onboarding process really helps with retention as compared to just rolling it out and letting the user sort their way through. Is that, is that what you're going for? That's definitely true, but it's not just that. What we found is that onboarding helps you achieve benchmark breaking, and in our case, category leading metrics for not just retention, but also for all of the other critical metrics, things like NPS, virality, your product market fit score, retention, not just of seats, but also of revenue. Really everything that you could care to measure a subscription or an enterprise SaaS company on and we care both about our consumer SaaS metrics as well as our enterprise SaaS metrics, onboarding can help you achieve category-leading results. So that's also, and we, we had referred to the Churn podcast, and I remember reading sometime in the last year or two your post on your product market fit machine. And what I'm curious about, the as I recall, and I don't have it in front of me, executives, really high-power email users was your those were your, not acolytes, proselytizers, the people who really spread the gospel 
of superhuman and who really were the right fit, the high MPS score, etc. I'm curious if you feel, do you feel that this is something that is ultimately going to be a niche product, however big, because it's really only for that high powered email user? Or do you think that, you, you know, does this expand to a huge TAM, like a huge percentage of email users? Or how are you, because that's, that was what I took away from The Verge product review was that this was ultimately, this user's experience didn't correspond with what other people want out of the email product. I'm, I don't consider myself superhuman as far as organization, but I'm fairly organized. So I don't know for me, the product market fit, but I'm curious how you view, given that focus, what does this long-term vision for superhuman look like? Where does, how many people care this much about email in their workflow that you can help solve their problems? Great question. So let's go back to that ideal user. We call them actually the highest expectation customer. That's the technical term for for this type of person. And the thing that makes somebody the highest expectation customer is that they will love your product for its greatest benefit. And they'll be incredibly discerning. And the most important thing about them is that others will aspire to be like them because others consider them to be incredibly smart or judicious in their choices. Now, for superhuman, the highest expectation customer tends to be a founder, a manager, an executive, somebody who lives in their email. Our highest expectation customer, it's critical for them to be responsive because if they're not responsive, they'll damage their reputation or they'll block their team or they'll miss or lose a deal. Now that person is already probably pretty good at email because they're doing pretty well in their career, but perhaps like myself, they're not necessarily the most organized or the most prioritized of people and they need help to get to the next level. You know, we described earlier on the call about how at a certain point, our habits just set in. And for some of us, it's maybe when we hit 40, but for me, I was already starting to ingrain when I hit 25 and I always need help to unload old habits and to relearn new, better habits. Now it doesn't mean, and this is the misconception maybe that perhaps people take away from my products market fit engine, it doesn't mean that that's the only people for whom superhuman makes sense. It just means that if you're building a product and you're trying to seek out product market fit, always have your highest expectation customer in mind. And I think that the journey of the iPhone or the journey of Tesla is a good example of the journey that superhuman can take. Tesla started, for example, with the Roadster and then moved to the Model S and then moved to the Model 3. And it's constantly increasing and expanding the market size that it can address. Having said that, I think this is important for any venture-backed company. The initial market you pick should inherently be scalable. So we are venture-backed. And so from an outcome perspective, our goal is to become a multi-billion dollar company. And at first glance, it may not seem feasible for what seems like such a focused product. But once again, let's do some maths together. How can we grow into a billion dollar valuation? Let's assume that at a billion dollar valuation, our valuation is 10 times our run rate. So once again, we're targeting an annual recurring revenue of $100 million. 
Well, that would just be 300,000 subscribers at $30 per month. And that is conservatively assuming no other ways to increase average revenue per user. For example, new products or going up markets or other ways to upsell customers. So we asked ourselves, do we think that we can get to hundreds of thousands of subscribers for the products that we've built today? And we answered emphatically, yes. So in other words, we can focus on what some would call a niche and still build a multi-billion dollar company. So one of the initial things is, I mean, Gmail, this is an email client on top of Gmail for those who are listening who are not familiar with uh, Superhuman. As far as if you don't have a Gmail account, you can't use Superhuman, right? At the end of the day. That's true today. Although we did just start building on Office 365 not, not too long ago. Okay, fair enough. But the Gmail market is 1.5 billion consumers. So it's a 0.1% for you as a $500 million revenue company. Correct. Essentially speaking. So I, I, did, I did think- Did you just do that maths in your head? That, that was very impressive, if so. I mean, I've thought about it for before, but yeah, but yeah, my math skills are good. Not as good as yours uh, <laughs> when you were walking us through the, the economics. Well, these are calculations I do all the time. These are sort of my shower calculations. I mean, obviously, Tam is, uh, is, is all we talk about these days in, in software, which to push back a little bit, there's been obviously with valuations where they're at. There isn't. There's a new VC every day taking a victory lap, and you, you're obviously backed by a top VC, several top. I mean, I, th- I think Anderson Horowitz is invested, right? Correct. And 16Z. Who else? Anyone notable? Uh, so the uh, yeah, the, the, the two notable investors would be Anderson Horowitz, who led a 33 million dollar Series B round last year, and First Round Capital, who led our seed round a few years ago. Okay. So there you go. These are the uh, Ferraris of venture capitalists. And as far as being looking at a business like this, my my counter, obviously, when we talk a lot about stuff going on in in software, and I mean, it was the focus for for Daniel and I last year, I'd written something about essentially SaaS competition, lower barriers to entry, easier to build a startup, microservices architectures, low burdens to get in. So you're going to have more crowded markets, more things are, are sliced up. And actually, I was looking at your, uh, there was an article about some of the stuff you're invested in, right? Like Tandem, Command E. Just to me, looking at some of these names, it's like a, almost a Swiss army knife of like very superhuman similarities in a lot of, of what you're investing in. You're taking Zoom and you're taking Slack and you're, you're like, well, we can create the virtual office uh, with this product, that higher level niche type of user experience. So when you do look at that, I will come back to something like a Slack. I was talking to a founder of a, a chat-based commerce company, which is doing really well, obviously, in this environment. Uh, contactless. A lot of people had to pivot quickly, their hockey stick type of, of metrics under COVID. And one of the interesting things as far as conversation with him in, in terms of what they use as a startup, he was like, my best value is Slack. It's like $6. I'm paying this for DocuSign. I'm paying this for Adobe, this for Office, Slack if my users are inactive. And you know, 80% of our work is going on in it. It's like, they could charge me so much more. So when I look at Superhuman, and obviously for me, from an ROI standpoint, is the way I look at it. You saved me enough time in a week. $300 is, is kind of irrelevant. But when you think about it within the context of a lot of other things in software, software is very interesting because sometimes something gets priced at the start at a level where you look at it and you're like, 
geez, how did how are people paying for this? Like the one, an interesting one that that we we've discussed in the past and it's come up a lot is a, a vertical CRM Viva systems, and they're built on top of the Force.com platform. Out of the gate, when they went public, they said they'd have a two billion dollar TAM in CRM. That TAM was based on math that essentially was four hundred thousand reps, and it worked out to five thousand dollars a year. Meanwhile, they're selling a story at the time right before they go public that this is a market where people are leaving on prem because they're saving forty percent. It's like, well, how are you going to get to five thousand if I'm going from on prem at two thousand down to a thousand? And by the way, Salesforce is only getting the force.com fee. Well, you look at that product seven years later, and I look at it today. I'm like, I can pay for Zoom, Slack, DocuSign, Office, Superhuman, whatever. I put them all together, and that's what I'm paying for something that costs $3 million to build on top of force.com. Now, yes, you've got a pharma, which is a TAM that is like 10, 15 customers who, who, when they shifted, let's call it a decade ago, were coming off a padding cliff and they were saving money. But you look at today's environment and you now have a competitor actually who's come out and they're coming out at $99, one third the price. So, and I'm sure obviously in the last, like, we scheduled this before, before Hay launched and I actually have, have, have gotten to use Hay. I don't know, Daniel, I don't think Daniel's used it yet, but different, different experience and, and we can get into that. But how do you think about that when you look at it and say, all right, well, do I have to spin the economics on its head again? Because $99 is one third and is there going to be another competitor and you know, do these giants? Like one of the biggest knocks, for example, which we talk a lot about on, on this podcast with Slack is... Microsoft Teams is free. So if you listen to Stuart Butterfield, he'll basically say his argument is that Microsoft pays you essentially to not turn them off. That's what they're asking you with Teams. And as far as he views Teams essentially as a competitor to Zoom video, but he's saying that you're really an Outlook and the power user for Excel and PowerPoint is a, is a separate segment, but everybody using Outlook who's really not doing as much as he used to in Outlook, that is subsidizing the rest of everything. When I think about that, I ask you, well, what's the burden competition-wise? Do you, do you view it as, okay, I'm going to run this business because like you said, you're venture-backed and there's certain expectations versus you actually have a competitor right now who's essentially known for, let's call it being the anti-venture. I built my you know, base camp is throwing the rocks at the establishment type of mentality, Jason Freed. And when you, when you think about that, it's like, oh, it's been profitable. And look, I mean, if you told me today, Superhuman could be a very profitable, amazing economics business that never has to be sold. And it's always going to have a market with people like me because there's people at this age level or who want this skill set who are still going to be using email and are never going to be as active in something else. So when I think of that, is it, like, do you look at the current market today and say, okay, we have this new competitor, we may have to cut pricing? Or are you thinking... That well, our product is so well differentiated uh, that's irrelevant at this point. I know that's a lot to digest there, but go ahead. Digested. Thank you. <laughs> if I could clink Stuart a glass of wine over that statement, I would. Look, I mean, the adage is true. You get what you pay for. In Teams's case, I think it's pretty accurate. Microsoft is using its bundling power. They're essentially paying you to not churn off Office. Hey is about as third a good as superhuman. I mean, you roughly said so yourself. It doesn't compare. When you pay $100 a year to get an email experience, you're going to get that value back. You pay three times as much for superhuman, you'll get a product that, three, that is three times as better. And I think the approach could not be more different. 
So first of all, hey is not a superhuman replacement. It is a Gmail replacement. You can't use your existing email address. You can't import an existing email account. And they've gone on record to say they never intend to support that. It's antithetical to what our user base wants. And secondly, Hey seems designed for a very different type of user than Superhuman. Like I said, we built Superhuman for the kind of person for whom email is work. Work is email. For our users, being responsive is critical because if they're not, they're blocking their team, they're losing a deal, or they're ruining their reputation. And that's why our value proposition is all about speed. And it does work. Like I said, our customers are getting through their inbox twice as fast as before. And you said you saw Inbox Zero for the first time since you opened your email account. Yeah, I love Inbox Zero. I also like what you've done. It's it's actually pretty funny. I mean, for our listeners, I've used Hey for the last week. And the interesting thing about Hey, and not not to criticize the product, everyone has a different experience with the product. One, there was no onboarding, obviously. It starts out once you've secured the email address, which you know was work in of itself, getting the, the, the invite. But once I secured that, I forwarded my Gmail inbox and they have a screener. And the idea is that you're going to go through the screener process and like LinkedIn, you know, adding a LinkedIn content. I mean, you sold your, your previous company to LinkedIn, correct? That's right. So like it, when you look at it and you say, you're, you're, you're essentially vetting every email that comes in. Now, here's the problem. I signed up for Superhuman, and the first thing that my, my takeaway is you made me faster, more efficient. Well, what's happened with me with this screener? I will get an email from Amazon, and I'll be like, these five books suggestions. And it's there with a bunch of other emails from Amazon. And the first thing that you do when you look at this in your screener is you, you enter this kind of dilemma exercise where you're like, do I block this? If I block this, does that block something else? Do I want to block this even? Like, I could just see it. And uh, okay, I like the, I like book suggestions. It's not it's, this is not super spammy, but you you end up having to do this with every single thing that's coming through Gmail. Now here's the problem, Raul, for me, I had very bad email habits, right? So I've basically I'm importing all of those into Hey, and I'm sitting there now. I'm actually you're not speeding me up, you're slowing me down. So I'm sitting there thinking about things. I shouldn't even be thinking about because it's like, uh, you know, should I have unsubscribed from this? Should I have blocked this before? Like, I mean, I can do these things all now inside Superhuman, but the exercise is like, you, you've taken my inbox and you've split it into other, the, the news, and then of course, like the inbox. What I like about the inbox is that this has just been done essentially from, a, from, from an automated standpoint. If I want to split the inbox even further, I can do that myself. Right. But when it I sounds look at- like he's created busy work for you. Yeah, it, <laughs> you're going to take a shot there. Well, I mean, look, I mean, it's I can I get the concept. Look, we started this conversation with you talking about how email has an advantage over chat and Slack and, and whatnot because of identity management. My email is tied to so much stuff. Like Facebook has tried to do this. LinkedIn has tried to do this. Sign in with this. Sign in with your Apple now for my subscriptions to all kinds of newspapers and whatnot. But my email is there for everything. I can't get rid of my Gmail. I mean, it's gonna, it would take a lot of work and it would change a lot of stuff. You're talking about banks, you're talking about subscription services, you're talking about a ton of things. It's just not happening. I mean, what person really wants to do that? So you're basically telling me that I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to carry a second email. And here's the second email. I forward everything to it. I'm going to go through the whole process of essentially setting up the filters that I should have been figuring out on my own in Gmail if I wanted to do it. So I'm going to spend this time going through every single thing that comes in and decide, in or out. And if it's in, do I put it in inbox? Do I put it in feed? 
or do I put it in receipts? And receipts is also kind of weird because it's not on the front page. So I'm buying all this stuff online. I just want to see it pop up. And then I hit the check mark on, on Superhuman Apple app. And if I'm just not in the mood to go through stuff and I'm glancing, I can breeze through that. Now they've got to focus, they've got to set aside, and then they've got reply, reply all. But then you've got to go to another page to like essentially move something or get rid of it. I can't fly through anything. And that's where, where like from, from a usage pers- perspective for myself, I kind of hit a wall. And I'm just like, but you could also argue that you, you conditioned me over the last 30 days, right? And <laughs> in the other direction. I think what we've done, and this really stems from my background as a game designer. So I used to be a video game designer back in the day. What we've done is make an experience that's fun, fast, and effective. It's pretty obvious to any game designer that what Hay has actually done, and you know, you characterized it as taking a shot. Uh, maybe that's what it sounds like, but I'm really coming at it just from sort of almost an academic perspective as a product and a game designer. It genuinely does sound like busy work. Why ask people to take decisions over and over and over again? So for those that haven't used Superhuman, our approach is very different. If you have an old email account, which it sounds like you do, and it's receiving a lot of email, then turn on what we call split inbox. And it's, it's an extremely powerful feature. You can separate automatically your person-to-person email from everything else, from your marketing emails, from your automatic updates, from your, your social network updates. And for most people, that's not really enough. Then you can start to define other split inboxes, like a news split, or you can even do custom splits. So I personally run with a GitHub split, but you could do Jira if that's your thing. I personally run with a Google Docs split, but you could do O365 if that's your thing. And so the idea is Superhuman automatically takes away most of the stuff that we know you probably don't want to read. Like any other piece of machine learning or AI, it's not going to be 100% accurate, but it's 90% right. And then on top of that, you build a few custom splits of stuff that you definitely know you want to read. One of the most popular amongst our customer base is DocuSign, it turns out. That's a, just a, an apparently very common search and a very common split inbox. And it seems to work significantly better because then you don't have to take screening decisions with every single person who sends you an email. I'm glad you kind of went to that point, Raul. What it reminds me of is the... I was thinking about the concept of the bundle, right? And the idea of bundling, unbundling, and everything is just... You go in one direction until it corrects and you go back towards reconstituting. And I think about Slack, and Slack is effective because you can integrate all those different GitHub, Jira, PagerDuty, whatever else. You can just bring them into one communications platform. But as I mentioned in Slack's case, I like it because it shuts out the outside world. But at some point, you're creating, you're essentially unbundling your external communications and your internal ones. And I think what you're describing is that you can do all the same in your email is the superhuman goal. And I guess I just, what I'm postulating and maybe curious for your thoughts is where we go with email, if we take the narrative that was implied in that Walt Mossberg piece, which is that people are sick of email, it's a lot, it's like old postage mail where you're getting spam, you get government notices, but you don't get really enjoyable communication the way you might have in 1998. But that could be the case that it's not just because email itself is flawed. It's just that the way it's gone, it's it's become contaminated. But if you institute more of a systemized approach through whatever the mode, in Hayes' case, the bet is 
once you spend the time initially building it out and you screen what you want to screen, you can ultimately get to where you want to. I would assume that's their bet that once you invest that time, you get into a more sustainable. But either way, both products are sort of a bet on you can use email properly. You can rebundle email as your communications hub, but it requires some conscious thought as far as how to do so. In Superhuman's case, that's through an onboarding process, that's through the AI functionality and your custom splits. As a thesis for why email is going to continue to be such a central hub for communications or why it can be instead of chat-based tools, does that resonate or is that how do you sort of see the next five years, the next 10 years for email in general, and then obviously superhumans place in it. It does resonate. I think, though, that our bet is, is not that email can be that hub, but that for our users, it already is and always was that hub. And the reason for it is that Slack anxiety. And I don't want to pick on Slack because it's, it's a really, really well-made product, and, and we use and love Slack internally as well. Let's, so let's just zoom out and say chat. The, the issue with chat is that it does not promote thoughtful conversation. It does not promote asynchronous conversation. It does not give you the tools and structures and triage capabilities to differentiate between a dozen conversations that you and I might have in the same day. They all meld into each other. It's structurally not good at thoughtful work. And our user base understands that intuitively and inherently. And that fundamentally, even putting the units of authentication arguments to one side, that fundamentally is why email is well-designed. And so then superhuman allows you to, you take out the pain points, you take out the thorns in the side by addressing some of the flaws with what emails become. And so you ultimately, as much as we might tilt towards these newer ways of communicating, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater, you address the problems. And then ultimately, we have that systematic ability to deal with that communication effectively. Exactly. The baby's great. Let's just you know replenish the bathwater or have a, a different kind of washing mechanism altogether. <laughs> Quick question: Age as a demographic. Well, I was having my nephew on, on Roblox, and today in the stock market, Robinhood, we have a president who, who who tweets everything in the United States. We're all active on Twitter, TikTok. I can spend two hours, and you know they're like nine second videos. I mean, I, I, how old are you, by the way, if you don't mind me asking? Gosh, now I have to remember. I believe I'm 36. Okay, so I mean, you're younger than me. So I mean, like when you think about this, this new generation, they're growing up completely different. So when I was, I, I don't know if you if you've got these metrics down by uh, for superhuman customers, but like, do you have de- demographics, average age? I don't believe that's something we've analyzed. No. Okay, because I would be looking at this and I would say we're creating an entire generation that for those of us who've who've lived in both worlds. Yeah, I, I get it. Fatigue, anxiety, going back to a, an interesting thing regarding your product and, and hey, whether or not read receipts. I, if I'm paying for a premium product, uh, one of the criticisms for read receipts is, is invasion of privacy. And I, you know, I was talking about this with someone. I was like, look, if I had had this before from personal email when I was a lot younger, when you're applying for a job, a lot of time is wasted being like, 
did that person read it? Should I send a follow-up email yet? Not knowing location or whatever. I know you guys removed that when, you, when there was a little controversy around that maybe a year ago or something. But as far as just as, as making you faster and more efficient, if I know that I sent an email to someone you know, regarding a job interview and I'm waiting to see whether they replied, read it, ignored it, don't care. If I know they read it, I can action that. 48 hours later, send a, send a follow-up email. And if I don't hear a, a, a reply there, then I know maybe they don't want to talk to me at all, or I can escalate it and try another way of getting at that person if I'm going to be super persistent. So to me, that's actually saving a lot of time where you sit there dwelling, do I send this? Do I not? Do I wait longer? Why has this person not responded? And like you talk about anxiety, right? I, I imagine many people in, in life have had anxiety like that when it came to email. But I think of this current generation, they're real-time everything. They'll tweet at somebody. I mean, Twitter is remarkable. You got kids you know, having chats with Elon Musk. The president is retweeting 20-year-olds. So it's a different type of universe, essentially. And is there a risk that, like, I mean, from a business model standpoint, I get it. And you've made a really good argument, by the way, when we talk about Microsoft defending email. If I was to ask you from a business perspective, I'd be like, if Outlook is so key to Microsoft, then why hasn't Microsoft made email a better experience? And same thing with Google with Gmail. If you look at both of them, why have they not bothered to invest the time? And these are trillion plus dollar companies. And we're here talking about 100 million in ARR. And if you're talking about their wide customer base, why haven't they prioritized these projects? So Two, two sides of the coin, one age in terms of usage, and then the business dynamics of, of the leaders in tech, are they just asleep at the wheel? I think these are really interesting questions. I don't have the age demographic data, so I couldn't comment. Anecdotally, though, I would say that we seem to span the entire spectrum in terms of demographic. It's really people of all ages that I see using Superhuman because people of all ages use email for work. And one of my goals in building Superhuman was, and this is really hard, by the way, was to create a horizontal tool. I did not want to create a vertical email tool. I didn't want to build, for example, with, with full respect to these teams, fronts that generally goes after customer support and Mixmax that generally goes after sales. I wanted to build a truly horizontal email product that anyone could use if what they did was a lot of email. So with respect to the industry leaders, Microsoft, Apple, Google, you know, I think it's really interesting. Are, are they asleep at the wheel? I don't think so. I, I think what they have, though, is what some people rather affectionately refer to as strategy tax. Yes, if Gmail or if Outlook were their only products and their only initiatives, they'd probably put tremendous more effort into them than they do. But the fact of the matter is, those are just one of myriad projects and products that they have to invest in over time. And they've both done some really impressive work in those products. It's just that they're now both legacy products and we have the advantage of having rebuilt Superhuman from the ground up. So we were able to ask ourselves, what would Gmail look like if it were built not 15 years ago, but today and with today's technology? Well, it would be super fast. Everything would happen in 100 milliseconds or less. It would be visually gorgeous. It would feel meticulously crafted. And so that's what we went after. I think ultimately Google and Microsoft don't really care what we, the small players, are doing. When you consider that Gmail has one and a half billion users, like you said, and Microsoft has a near monopoly on IT purchasing, 
you can start to see that really they're just locked into this very complex chess game against each other, a battle to win the hearts and minds of every consumer and every enterprise across the world. So their attention is almost entirely focused on one another and how they emerge victorious, not next year, but 5, 10, 20 years from now. Speaking quickly just of the Giants, because it, uh, it's also tangential to the Hay discussion, was that that also came to attention because they yelled about Apple and Apple's App Store. And I'm curious, I presume Superhuman, who d- does Superhuman actually sell through the app or is Superhuman only a web-based purchase and then you are able to download the apps? Like most of the products, we have both. We have in-app purchase as well as web subscription. Okay, so what do you what do you make about Apple? And it's mostly Apple that people point to. Google has the same role, but I know at Seeking Alpha, the Apple's subscriptions are like five x what we earn out of our Google app subscription base. So, what do you make of the that sort of gate? And I guess it, maybe we can extend it, given what you said about Microsoft. You're starting to design there, Google. You're still playing with these large gatekeepers, and with just the fact that things could shift based on whatever they view as as their core needs then they don't you know they may not care about you so you have a market opportunity but they also don't care about you so they may shift the playing field without you knowing what do you make about operating amongst those giants well having spoken to both google and microsoft about what we're doing they love what we're doing they love the idea that startups can build products in their ecosystems because it does further build stickiness to their ecosystems. Imagine if you are an exchange customer and you run Office 365 and there's maybe 30% of the people in your organization who need something a little bit more focused than Outlook, which uh, is designed for everybody in your organization. Superhuman is designed for the people who do the most email. Well, then actually, you're pretty happy if those people continue to buy Superhuman on top of Office 365, because it's not like they've stopped buying Office 365. They continue to do that. If anything, they're further entrenched into the ecosystem. And exactly the same argument runs on Google. So it is to the benefit of the incumbents when people build on their platforms. This is why platforms are so powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. It's actually interesting. I, I mean, I don't know if you uh, if you have a position on, by the way, what what happened between uh, Apple and Hey, because you know, on Twitter I actually, you know, a knee jerk, I was like, not cool. Apple is a startup, and they're they're doing. Uh, I mean, well, you can't really call Basecamp a startup anymore. And it's also interesting that there's the, the single shareholder is Jeff Bezos, so you're kind of you're throwing monopoly stones, and it's, it's I found that a little bit ironic from from, from that sense from the in, in, investing side, but. At the same time, you do get the point they're trying to make. But when I talked to several founder friends, I got immediate pushback. They're like, oh, wait, Apple sets these rules. You don't have to play by it. You're making a choice. They've, they've built this fantastic mall, and it's really great, and prime real estate, and they're taking care of it. And you, you want in there. They spent the time building it. They, they should get a cut. That's the way business is done. But on the flip side, you have people being like, well, Apple is too intrusive with this. And you saw they made the changes that on the, the new email, you can set default on the email in the browser. So I, I don't know if, if you feel like commenting on, on any of that. Well, I think it's all too easy in this day and age to feel outraged. I think that the media is conditioning us to be outraged, but I largely agree with your founder friends. 
And I think in this case, it was mostly an opportunistic publicity stunt. And here is why. There is no way, absolutely no way, as veterans of the industry, and having built this app for two years, that you do not understand the iOS App Store guidelines. The policies have been in place relatively unchanged since 2010. And if for some reason you don't understand them, any lawyer can explain them to you. So I think the outrage was irresponsible at best and duplicitous at worst. Basecamp is not a startup. They've gone on record saying that they're more profitable per employee than Google. And TechCrunch put it best. The whole debacle, and I'm quoting now, served as a nice bit of high-profile marketing for a brand new app that would have otherwise flown under the radar. It was a bid for attention. So I think the real story is being missed. There are better arguments being made by companies with much more to lose and with a much stronger position, such as Spotify, Tinder, and Epic Games, that Apple's practices are possibly anti-competitive. And this is where I think the real story lies. So Spotify obviously operates a streaming business, notoriously margin thin, and now they have to compete with a streaming service offered by the platform that they also pay to be on. That's the kind of issue we should be talking about. And by the way, that antitrust case is underway. It just started up in the EU. So that's the real story here. And it's, it's very little to do with email. Yeah, Spotify, by the way, is uh, something Daniel and I also have taken keen interest in. It's, it's actually interesting because I've defi- just signed up for paid Spotify after being Apple Music. And I'm like, whoa, this is pretty good. <laughs> I've been a paid subscriber for 10 years. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I'm holding out but because uh, I don't mind the ad load and I'm on the computer more than mobile. But yeah, it's, it's a better UX too. I mean, going back to what you guys have done also with gamification, I don't understand with like all the gamification that goes on and particularly with kids these days. I, I think with, what, with email, it's, a, it's, it's actually therapeutic. Like that bear that, that was being posted uh, yesterday all over Twitter it would seem to be common sense to, to, to put a carrot out there once you've gone through your emails and you're just like, ah, oh, that was fun. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, it's, it's not even gamification. This, this is true game design. It's something I've spent a lot of time talking about. Gamification in general doesn't work. And I don't know how philosophical you want to get on this podcast, but there's a huge difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. Gamification really hooks into extrinsic motivation when you provide external rewards for getting things done. And the problem with external rewards is they take away from the intrinsic enjoyment of doing it. So a lot of what we do at Superhuman when it comes to product design is to really hook into the intrinsic feeling of getting stuff done, the satisfaction of hitting inbox zero, the various forms of pleasure that you can feel along the way, and the ineffable sense of fun, which it turns out when you analyze it isn't as ineffable as it may initially seem. Fun you can describe or rather define as pleasant surprise. And there's a whole theory behind that that I find super fascinating. Having grown up playing video games, I learned how to code so that I could make my own video games. Having worked as a video game designer, as an active game designer now, I I run a tabletop D&D group for my friends, it's just something I find so interesting. What's a favorite game role? Is it D&D, presumably Dungeons and Dragons? Is that sort of favorite? Or what's a favorite game for you from growing up? Oh, boy. I mean, gosh, I don't know where to begin. Uh, I guess it depends on the era, right? So I was a Nintendo fanboy growing up. 
the Super Nintendo was my first console, so I guess Super Mario, Mario World on that. Mario Kart was amazing. Although there were some good ones and some bad ones, the, uh, the Super Nintendo one was amazing, the N64 one was amazing, the GameCube one less so. And I think that that whole series took a, a downhill trend from there. More recently, I've been getting into narrative-driven role-playing games. I think Witcher 3 is at the top of many gamers' all-time list for good reason. It's not only a technical masterpiece, it's also a miracle of storytelling. And that's one of my most favorite things is to figure out how do you tell a compelling story? How do you get people to come with you on an emotional and a learning journey? That to me is one of the most fun exercises in the world. Yeah, it's funny just in thinking about all these different things about how all these disciplines kind of bleed into each other. For example, one of the things we've been sort of, we haven't dived into it yet, but with Spotify, actually the company that I think Akram and I talk about between ourselves the most in comparison to Spotify is TikTok. And so it's just that attention, attention ecosystem, even though you wouldn't necessarily think of those as competitors. And it's the same, the idea of the, what you learn from game design, how it can apply to your email. And then also, yeah, storytelling is not when my, my parents would complain to all of us in the family for playing too many video games and not a ton of story with Tecmo Super Bowl, but with Mario 64 or whatever else. There is that storytelling that you don't think about Diablo. I was a Blizzard guy in that era. But yeah, it's just fascinating how like as you zoom out, there's so much overlap in these different sectors and these different areas of our lives that we don't necessarily apply. And maybe that's going back to those 14 traits, the I don't know, maybe you could attribute that to flexibility a little bit or to borrowing from different areas to kind of understand a fuller picture and understand things. It's definitely an idea I subscribe to. I think the most interesting products, the best innovations occur when we cross-pollinate between fields of study. And this is why, actually, I do the D&D game, because it allows me, on a bi-weekly basis, to be a, a game designer. And I do think that the future of both consumer and enterprise software is rooted in game design. You know, we as users of the software want our experiences to be fun. We as the end users now make the choice as to what our organizations buy. I don't think it's an accident that Stuart was also a game designer and ran a gaming company before Slack. There is a pattern here and I think it's very strong. Yes. All right, that's fascinating. Akram, any other questions or uh, no? I think I think that's a, I think that was more than enough. I mean, excellent. Uh, okay, yeah, one one quick one. Uh, SaaS SAS valuations higher or lower a year from now? <laughs> Boy, if you're asking the early stage angel investor, I assume you mean sort of public SaaS valuations. Public, com- public companies, you know, your your leaders, your 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 cool kids table, your Twilio's and Zooms and Octas and uh, etc. What an interesting question. Well, this is my layman's interpretation, so forgive me and bear with me. I suspect that the valuations are going to be more driven by external factors, such as will we continue to be in a recession? How big and bad will the second wave of COVID be? What happens in the election at the end of this year? Those will be my top three, rather than anything intrinsic about how well are these companies actually doing and how the markets are actually doing. 
Now, if you want to talk about intrinsics, I think we're at the start of something huge. SaaS has only been growing as an idea, as a concept, as a market size, and I think will only continue to grow. We're in the early days of SaaS. Zoom itself, an amazing product, but relatively simple. They've taken video calling and made it amazing. Now think of all the things that can be built on top of that. Think of all the things that can be built on top of Twilio. You mentioned Tandem and Commandy earlier in this call. I also run an angel investment fund with a buddy, and we're doubling down hard on business infrastructure, on future of work, on viral SaaS, on productivity. I think that all of these things are set for rapid growth. That said, who knows what the public markets will do, because I think it will be largely driven by external factors rather than anything intrinsic about these companies. I would, I would, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny you say that because I mean, it is, there is an explosion of innovation. And like you said, it's early days for it at the same time in the United States, they can't get unemployment insurance out because they don't have COBOL programmers for labor related. So, I mean, (laughs) if you want to talk about it infrastructure, you know, the the biggest problem with uh, delivering stimulus these days is that they don't have Amazon last mile delivery for, for money. But if, if you do think about uh, SaaS, you, your point on, on the, the flip side to that is, well, if you can build a lot on top of many things, does, does everything get sliced up into teenier and little niche-focused slices? Doesn't it become harder today to build the next Google or Amazon more than ever? I think that's an interesting question and one that has been debated a lot. It probably is harder today to build the next Amazon or Google. But maybe that's because we don't have the imagination, you and I right here, right now, to plot that path. And I do think that when founders are on that path, they don't necessarily see all the way. Very few people are Jeff Bezos and are able to chart literally A through Z from the get-go. I don't, for example, believe that that's what Mark Zuckerberg had in mind when he started Facebook. I think he was, in a sense, following path of least resistance And maybe he saw two or three steps ahead, but I doubt he saw 26 steps ahead. Now, the counter argument is it's only getting easier to build interesting products. Take email as an example. Historically, it's been super expensive to play in the space. If you wanted to build a new email client or a new, let's say, web browser or a new spreadsheet like Airtable, you had to be a multi-billion dollar tech company To begin with, you had to be Microsoft, Apple, or Google. But thanks to better APIs, better developer tools, better distribution channels, cheaper capital, a startup like Superhuman or Airtable can actually play in the space. And I think that's what has changed. And it unlocks new strategies like segmentation. The idea that Superhuman could make a play for premium productivity I think in the old days would have been kind of crazy. People would have said, well, what is premium productivity? No, I'm just going to use the email client that's basically free. But now it makes sense because it's possible to build these experiences as a startup. Very, very interesting stuff. I mean, I'm still, I I invest more value investing because it's easier for me to do the math and understand the path and kind of execute on the next step or the next two steps. And what you're talking about is, that the playing field is opening up and that's where just being able to see a little bit further ahead and think a little bit bigger and take advantage of that will 
redound positively to people who get it right. So very interesting and very, it's a, it's something that people who can shift their mindset or have that mindset accordingly will be able to take advantage of that, I think. So that's yeah, the tool, the tools are there today. I mean, without question, the, I mean, we talk about this in content. I watched a TikTok of this girl yesterday. She should have a Netflix special. She's like, I'm literally, <laughs> by the time I was done, I was like, this is like stand up comedy gold. Uh, your ability to generate content, like here we are doing a podcast, we're talking that like, you're in Spain, I'm on the East Coast. You, you, where are you? West Coast? Yeah, I'm in San Francisco right now. Okay. And I mean, we're recording this and we wouldn't be able to distribute it to just about whoever wants to, you know, pick it up on Twitter and, right, you know, we're discussing stuff that's going on. So, like, the production and distribution and content we've we've seen how how that's changed and it's it's similar in so many things like you were saying in email and and if you look at stuff built on top of Twilio if you look at the the ability these days to pull in APIs and this concept of API microservices architecture and the way a company shifting from let's say monolithic to distributed like we're talking about distributed work i mean like that's the biggest topic of discussion lately these days and distributed architecture has been the way software has been being built again you know which was something that was actually a craze back in in, in the late 60s yeah i mean I, th- I think i think it's all very fascinating all right well raul thank you so much this has been fascinating really appreciate you taking time more time than planned out of your day to speak with us. And uh, I I think people are going to really enjoy a a ton of different aspects of this conversation. So thanks again. And hopefully as email develops, maybe, or as superhuman develops, maybe we'll get a chance to do this again sometime in the future. Looking forward to it. Thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, disagreements, or anything else. We will be publishing at least one episode every other week for the summer before we ramp up in the fall and love to hear from you with ideas. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd also be really grateful. This has been a Shortman Studios production and our theme song is Move On by SoCal. Thanks for listening and see you next time.